0: Hi you guys, this is Liz Ryan and this is episode 36 of the Truth About Work podcast. We're talking about work, as always, how to navigate the job, the job search, the supervisor, the co-workers, the whole thing, your career, what to do in various situations, that's why we're here, and also talking about work, maybe from a little more altitude, what works about it, what's broken about it. We're gonna talk about that today in episode 36 a little bit because we have a question about the design of work that we are so familiar with. But first we have a question from Rachel. Hi Liz, is it ever appropriate to ghost someone in the business world, in the working world? Is it ever appropriate to ghost someone? This is such a great question, Rachel, thank you. And it's a hot topic right now too because although employers have been ghosting Candidates, job candidates since forever. I mean, literally, you know, as long as I've been working and that's 40 years. Since this has been going on forever, it's really interesting that it's only a topic in the media now that candidates, occasionally ghost employers, don't show up for interviews. Don't call back when the employer says, hey, we'd like to meet you. And they're startled, they're rattled. And there are stories about it which is just bizarre. This is the gaslighting that I talk about. Gaslighting, like like there's something wrong with you for thinking this is really wrong. It's been conventional, it's been systematic for people to apply for jobs and even be interviewed two, three, four times and just be ghosted utterly cold. I talked to a woman who interviewed at the world's largest software company eight times. She said, I know, I felt like an idiot. Number five interview, number six interview. I went eight times and they ghosted me 100%. And I wrote to every single person to follow up, every single person I met, because they all have the same convention in their email, you know, first name, dot, last name, at company name or whatever, but she could write to them. And they had all corresponded with her. Most of them had corresponded with her previously. Perfectly fine, oh yeah. Here's this, here's that question I have for you. Here's an answer. We're all just buds and you're interviewing here. It's all really good. And then the spigot turned off and she just could not get a reply. And this is normal and conventional and people are used to it. It's horrifying because the interview process, the hiring process is so often engineered according to social rules. We just banter and we chatter and chit chat. And when we do physical, invent- uh, physical inventory, physical interviews, not so much anymore, but when we were doing face-to-face interviews in offices, you know, we would have coffee and, oh, is that your dog? He's so cute, you know. But then when they say, no, nah, thank you, you're just done. There's not going to be any more communication. Such a burn. It's so unfair and it's unprofessional, you know, but employers really haven't faced consequences for that behavior only the worst ones where people have agreed we're not going to work there. But in general, it's kind of like, oh, well, it's just part of job hunting. So it's so ironic that now there's a topic. Is it okay? Is it okay to ghost your employer? I mean, not your employer, a prospective employer. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend that anybody ghost anybody, but, but there are situations where there is no reply required. Okay. You, you, you were you sent in a resume, an application, you were contacted by these folks in July and you had a phone screen and they checked references. You had a, you had a regular interview, maybe Zoom interview in July or two of them, three of them. And then you just, the trail went cold and you didn't hear anything else. And now it's October and they write to you and say, can you talk to one of our managers tomorrow at 10 AM? I uh, unsolicited mail is unsolicited mail. You guys, it doesn't matter what the past relationship may have been. You should be presumed to be off down your path at this point by them. You have no obligation to say, no, are you kidding me? Or really interesting. You call me now. You, you completely ghosted me in July. None of that. None of that. Don't even get out of your power for anybody. Eh, you're allowed to ghost them in that case. Certainly we ghost people all the time, right? Spam is unsolicited mail. They're trying to sell you something and you just you just ghost them. You can't even assume it's a person, although sometimes it clearly is a person. You can even look them up on LinkedIn. Their name is on the email. You might get this kind of email spam uh, at work in, in as you conduct your job. People say, hey, you should really try our new product. Nobody expects you to reply. And, you know, in the job search process, when somebody reaches out of the blue with the presumption to think, or they'll say, or, or not even a, a, a recontact from months ago. It could be a fresh contact. We found your resume on Indeed, and we'd like to talk to you at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. What? Are you, why? Who are you? It's so disrespectful. It's so rude. I don't want to work for you. You wouldn't even write back because they don't deserve your feedback. They are no one, and you block them. We are all economic units. Your business, your career, which is a business is as much a business as any business you don't you are not less than any organization out there but that's the gaslighting that you're supposed to think you are so great question Rachel we don't go out of our way to ghost people but yeah no when you're dissed and dismissed and disrespected I'm nobody oh is owed the favor of your reply all right question from Kyle hi Liz there's a debate in my workplace Nobody completely loves the job, but it's a good enough job for all of us for now. And the question is, is it dumb to try to follow your dreams in case you don't get there? Could be a major disappointment. Thanks. Yeah, I've seen articles about this topic too, Kyle, lately. Not during this coronavirus pandemic, because a lot of people are not thinking as expansively as maybe we were a couple of years ago, but but over the last few years, a lot of stuff about should you follow your dreams? Does it make sense? Some people would find that phrase to follow your dreams, you know, too fairy tale-ish. And 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 but we'll just use it as shorthand for to figuring out what you want to do, accomplish, try, experience, contribute, leave behind in this lifetime, your time on earth, very precious, and and go after it. Um, it's hard to, I can't see the counter argument. Don't do that because you might be disappointed and no, there's no might. You're going to be disappointed at many points. Ask anybody who accomplished anything they thought was important and they went ahead and accomplished it. Anybody. They could be famous. It could be The Rock. I think he's, I think, I think The Rock is the most highly paid actor on the planet and God bless, right? He was a wrestler. He said, I want to be an actor now. It took a really long time. I mean, but he, he did it. (laughs) He did pretty much everything he wanted to do. He's done a lot of things since then. And, you know, he faced a tremendous amount of disappointment. It wasn't just him, all, all people who do all things, you are going to fall down and get back up and fall down and get back up. That's the learning. There's no way to learn or course correct unless you fall down. So it's getting good at the disappointment part. It's not, let me, let me try to live my life such that I'm never disappointed don't ever go out to eat, right? I mean, no, it's something else. It's not avoiding disappointment. And, and, and in order to achieve that goal, avoiding all risk. Come on, you walk across the street, you take a risk. You, you, you get up in the morning, you take a risk. No, it's clarifying, figuring out and refining that vision over time. What am I meant to do here? What signals am I getting from my brain, from my gut? From my soul, from my ancestors, from the weather, right? From the universe, from whatever. Don't even have, this is not an airy-fairy view of the world, by the way. What else would we do with our time? What other more practical thing could we do with our time? And I mean the, the big span of time, the life, life cycle, lifespan, then use it the way we choose to use it to the extent that we can. I'm not diminishing the effect of structural barriers. They are real, they are real, but I tell folks who are beset unfairly and encumbered or have been encumbered by every structural barrier, you know, it's still up to you what to do in the face of that. that That's the one thing that doesn't change. There's an unbelievable amount of unfairness and inequity. We know it, we know it, and people are talking about it now. And, but, we still are stuck in the same place. Okay, what am I going to do with my time? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna, you know, say I'm not gonna do anything because of the unfairness foisted on me, right? What can I do in, in whatever wiggle room I have? Who can I band together with? Who can I support? Who can I get to support me? How can I get closer to whatever I decide is important? So I think it's goofy, to be honest with you, Kyle, when people say, don't follow your dreams. I'll tell you what, what to look for in that case is who has a vested interest in telling you not to go for your dreams. The person who wants you to stay exactly where you are. And there can be a lot of those people because it's uncomfortable to have folks around you evolve when you don't feel ready. And many of us have been there. Yeah. Teach me to sing extemporaneously. Okay, we have a question from Trina. Liz, you often talk about the design of work. Can you say more about this? Yes, Trina. I mentioned that in my intro. Design of work is that we know one system of work. I call it Godzilla. Scaly monster of, you know, sort of power and control and fear and bureaucracy. This is the design for work that we know. And it's not the only one, obviously. It's hierarchical. It has an org chart, skinny at the top, gets wider as it goes down. Supposedly, the individual arms of the org chart move freely under different managers, but no, they seldom do. Every big organization I've ever seen says we all have to be under one health plan. We're not going to have differentiation according to the unit. It's too much trouble to administer. There's going to be one handbook, one set of policies, thereby completely negating the purpose of the org chart which is that individual managers as appropriate in individual specific topics have have latitude to do things differently we don't often see that anymore sameness uniformity itself is seen as a virtue and that's one thing that makes it really hard to bring yourself to work to bring your art to work and put your stamp on a job can be really really hard i've been struggling with that for years and years and was very fortunate to get into situations where I really did get to do my art at work and I'm so grateful that's why I teach it now requires you know it requires bobbing and weaving it requires patience and it also requires finding your voice and being willing to walk away from stuff and all the same muscles that we're talking about in this podcast and in my stories and courses and books and whatnot but yeah this is a very specific design for work and it's about power and control. It's the Taylor Weber model from the you know, late industrial revolution. People are going to take their orders. It's a military model. And I think it works in the military. People say it works. They say you really do get a lot of latitude, depending on the mission, of course, as a, what we would call middle manager, as a leader of people, because context, right, is everything. Cont- what's going on in the field of battle? What's going on around you, man, is going to be more relevant often to making the right decision than what somebody tells you from a million miles away. In the business world, we tend not to have that flexibility or that trust in our leaders actually out there doing the work. and um, and so we have this very stilted, controlled, constrained, frustrating, Uh, design for work often and it's in everything it's in the yardsticks it's in performance evaluations the way we say everybody in this job in this job title has to be paid the same how how can that be when people come with vastly different experiences and and levels of experience and 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 altitude on the position and skills not we pay the same it's not just because it's uniform and easier to administer it's because it's cheaper obviously so we sacrifice a lot of really good things all the really good things in the most extreme cases people being excited and people bringing good ideas to the fore and and you know and the energy on the team and the support and the camaraderie we sacrifice that stuff way too often for uniformity and sameness and color inside the lines it's just dumb it's the year 2020 and it's time to examine and critique and really and really look at and deal with the flaws, the massive structural flaws in that design for work, not to mention the way uh, the way the design is administered. It's a big problem, even, even legislatively in our laws. I've talked to death about that, so I won't go there today. But our employment laws here in the United States of America are garbage, you guys, the worst in the industrialized world. And so this creates another artificial impediment. An obstacle that we're struggling against, and it's one reason why a lot of people go off on their own to start a business or become a consultant, because they're like, "I just the, the the employment laws are stacked against me. I can't do what I need to do working in a regular salaried position or working for wages." Other people say, "I'm going to do my thing outside of that system, and I am going to work for wages because it fuels." what I care about. And that's all really beautiful too. You're putting together your own design in a way, your own design for your life, which includes your work. But your life comes first. All right. Real quick question from Wayne. Liz, I heard you refer to the reactionometer. Can you explain it? Oh, Wayne. Yeah, I would love to explain the reactionometer. I go into this concept and model a lot in our courses, virtual courses, and in the book, Reinvention Roadmap's got a section about the reactionometer. It's illustrated. So you just got a picture, Wayne, a car, the dashboard of a car, and you have the odometer. It's like a half circle. It shows you how fast you're driving, the speed, from slow on the left to fast on the right. And that's what the reactionometer looks like. It's a half circle. It's like one half of an orange, but if it were sliced, right, just the top half. So you see the little arc going from... The far left to the far right. Got me so far? Is that the odometer? No, that's the speedometer. I'm out of it. Yeah, it's the speedometer. Odometer tells you something else, how far you went. But the speedometer is the one we are interested in. It's kind of like the reactionometer. But the reactionometer is not measuring speed. It's measuring fear and trust. And specifically, the fear or trust reaction, you are going to elicit When you speak your truth or advance an unusual idea or rattle someone's frame, shake their frame in any way, you're going to get reactions. And this is why I created the reactionometer to prepare you for that range of reactions and to let you know that this kind of distribution of fear reactions versus trust reactions and somewhere in between is normal. And you have to anticipate it. So if you picture the speedometer, the reactionometer as this half moon on the left, on the extreme left is trust. I love every word you are saying, Liz Ryan, for example. I love it. I needed to hear this. This is so great. I would follow you anywhere. This is so inspiring. I am on it. I get it. Wow. What a great message for me to get. That's ultimate trust. I will try stuff. I will, I will bring this stuff out to the people I know. And they trust the message, okay? Or they trust me, some combination. On the extreme other side of the reactionometer, the other extreme point the dial could get to is fear. And that is go die. That is shut up and die. And we see this in our political discourse right now, don't we? It quickly goes from this idea makes me uncomfortable and it just zooms all the way to the end of the dial. Die. Just, I hate you. I hate what you stand for. And it's visceral, it's physical, it's intense. And when you shake up frames and you say things people are not expecting to hear, get ready for the same range of reactions. The neutral point straight up and down on the reactionometer is, okay, I'm listening. Okay, I got to mull it over. I I, I, I I, don't hate you. I don't have any feelings about you because you said what you said or wrote what you wrote or did what you did. Um. I'm not saying I'm a fan. I'm not saying I'm a non-fan. I'm just in a contemplative mood. I'm taking it in and processing it. That's neutral. You're going to have fans and you're going to have detractors or as I call them, less than well-wishers on your path. Part of it is learning to deal with that, not being shut up, but also not to engage. Why do you need to engage? Everyone doesn't have to love your message. They say, On your path, you're going to meet barking dogs. You're going to run into barking dogs. You don't need to stay there and bark back at them. Just keep moving. Everything you do can potentially elicit a fear reaction in others, can elicit a trust reaction. And people move from one side of the reactionometer to the other all the time. They hate you. When they get to the extreme right-hand side of the reactionometer, Now I have to look it up and see if it's the right hand or the left hand. Uh, It doesn't really matter for the purpose of our illustration here on the podcast. Um, Reactionometer. Reactionometer explained. Here it is. Um, Yeah, the right hand side is fear and the left hand side is trust. I think I said that right. On the right hand side, I hate this idea. I hate you. And then slightly less fearful, you don't understand my situation. Nothing that you're saying is relevant to me. This you're gonna get that one a lot. And then very close to the halfway point, but still on the fear side of the reactionometer, it says, Oh, I already know all this. This is just this other thing. I already knew. I knew this all. Ah, you're not telling me anything I didn't know. That's a that's a fear reaction, right? I can't I have to tell you that I don't need to hear this, right? That's a fear reaction. Then the neutral zone, halfway up and down at the across the dial. The needle is completely vertical. It's just, I'm I'm listening. And then as we move into the trust side of the reactionometer, it says this could be a good thing. This could potentially be good stuff, good ideas for me. And then more trust is I see what this is going to be. I see how this can help me and I just need to get there. And then the extreme trust reaction on the far left side of the reactionometers. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. This changed my life. This is just what I needed to hear. And I want you to know that you will elicit and evoke the same range of reactions. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your idea, your concept, who you are, your words, your actions doesn't mean that at all. It's just that people react In fear to new ideas. We know this about people. We know this about ourselves, our family members, our friends, our colleagues, our boss, whoever. They react in fear to new ideas because new ideas are scary. So yeah, that's the reactionometer. Now you know. All right, a little bit of unbrainwashing and I'll tell you just a tiny little bit of my story, trying to spool it out over a whole bunch of podcasts. And we started that a couple episodes ago, and I'm going to continue it, even if it's just 30 seconds today. So we continue having that progress. A little little brainwashing though, around the idea of utopian, utopian notions, utopian themes. People say to me all the time, this human workplace stuff, isn't it kind of utopian? Well, if you're going to design something new, wouldn't you shoot for it to be the way it should be? rather than incrementally, tiny bit, slightly better than what we have, right? So when people call me and say, should we change our performance review system from 10 gradations to five? I'm like, why would you bother? Look at the system, pull the truck back a little further, and look at why you do it at all. Who cares 10 rating scales or five? What? This is weenie thinking. This is fear-based, bureaucratic. I cannot possibly shake the frame itself that says we have to grade people. So let me just change the grades. This, they've been doing this in school since way before I was a little kid. Let's change the grading system. Yeah, that's gonna really, how about if there were no grades and you just help kids get better at all this stuff by telling them they're amazing and, and you wanna help them improve. No, 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 we have to tell little kids they suck. It's extremely important to line them up and tell them where they suck and everything that they have to be trained to go for the teacher's approval, man. They have to hit those yardsticks. They have to feel, they have to lose sleep. They have to cry under their bed. They have to sob at some point. They have to know that you are not pleasing the adults in your life who are no one, by the way, someone who has this job to make you grovel. And I'm not dissing teachers. A lot of teachers hate this stuff too. What is the mindset? What is wrong with our mindset? Who's allowed to be whole? Who's allowed to be happy with themselves? And out of that, get better and better and stronger. Who's allowed to do that? So the idea of trying to design work, in our case, in a utopian way, what's the right way that would maximize and optimize everything? People and their brains and talents and their enthusiasm. And productivity, but a different kind that isn't yardstick by the day productivity minimalizes, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Marginalizes people by saying, here's what you get to contribute. We've taken your job, which on its own is a pretty cool, meaty job with a lot of creative aspects and you could really put your stamp on it. No, we sliced and diced that thing down to yardsticks. You better hit these yardsticks every day or you suck and you're going to be afraid. That's kind of where we want you on the edge of afraid. What? What is going on? Who does their best work at the edge of afraid or deep into I'm afraid? But this is the prevailing mindset. I talked about the design for work. Fear is obviously a central element of it. Keep people on their toes. Why though? Why Jack Welch? Why grade them, rate them, get rid of the worst ones. Yeah. We're going to get an artificial productivity boost from people trying to screw their co-worker out of a job instead of themselves. It's awesome. Imagine what they take home to their family. Imagine the influence of their community and their, their kids and the health of their kids. Oh my God, who cares? I get to make money. Disgusting, vile, you guys. Can we just talk about this stuff? For me, I told you I was babysitting. Last time I talked about the human workplace and the influences got me thinking about this stuff. Then my friend, Liz, my best friend, we were thick as thieves, Liz and Liz, and had our babies together, the whole thing. She passed away in 2006. And, but when we were kids in 10th grade, she says, we're not making enough money babysitting. We're getting jobs. She was the ringleader. She said, we're getting jobs over the hill from our town in the next town. It's a huge banquet restaurant. We're going to go in there. We're totally going to get jobs. They're hiring 16-year-old girls. Because they'd specified back then, girls, boys. We went. We interviewed with this scary guy who ran the dining room. Huge, massive place, massive dining room. We were in the buffet room. Weeknights, weekends, matinee. They don't call it that. Afternoons on the weekends. And the thing was huge. I don't know what that ballroom sat. 300 people, maybe. And they all came up to this buffet, 60 foot long or so. I would stock the, uh, the fish, uh, the uh, shrimp. They would get an ice carving every day, a new ice carving, like four or five feet tall, elaborate. I, I love talking to the ice carver down in the basement, really like a, a craft, been doing it you know, in a family forever. And he'd make these amazing ice sculptures and I would put up the shrimp in a neat pattern or the, or the clams or whatever. And then go at the end of the shift, you know, after replenishing them 400 times, take the remaining ones off the ice. And they literally put them back in the freezer. Like, there was no, it was obvious from a process control standpoint, there was no way to track an individual clam or mussel or shrimp and know how long it had been out there. In a million years, you couldn't get me to eat that buffet, but it was extremely lucrative. And the place was always packed. They were famous for their macaroons and prime rib. It was like, okay, it's the 70s. And these big hot dishes, you know, you open the thing. What's it called? The big round globe looking thing with the hot dishes. They all looked alike. I asked the uh, high school boys who, who staffed the hot food. We did. We girls did the cold stuff and the desserts. Uh, I, I asked them, what are these different dishes? How do you keep them all straight? They said, we just make up names. We just say, this is the Crammel Fortis of Beef. It's no such thing. You know, they had names. They just made up because people don't really care. They just ask you. It's all like 10 ingredients, you know what I mean? Mm. But wow, what a learning experience. What an unbelievable learning experience at that restaurant because I saw, I mean, you want to talk about dysfunction, junction. It was not even a consciousness back then that there would be any higher expectation, rampant sexual harassment. You're sticking 316 year old girls in there with 45 year old guys, waiters. I mean, come on. It was, I learned to Bob and Weave. I learned Ray Partey, right? Dorothy Parker level. To get out of sticky situations horrendous horrendous but this was was work in the 70s it's just you go to work and I love it my dad I I adore my dad but he would pick me up from work and say good shift and I'd be like oh I can't even I can't tell him I can't tell him one single thing that happened yeah I was there's a microphone live microphone you know in one of the rooms from a wedding and I sang you know Fleetwood Mac's song it sounded pretty good with the acoustics. <laughs> that was my day, Dad. No, I actually got got very fit in that job, running up and down stairs a hundred times in an eight-hour shift with heavy ass platters on both shoulders, and there was no standards. There was no, what? EEO? No. I Later, I'll write a book because it, it's quite incendiary, the stuff that I saw and heard and really was steeped in in that place. But I said, oh, okay. So now I, now I kind of get it. I really wouldn't have expected it to be otherwise, but when you get out here and you're working in a place, it is the, the, the there is no net and the gloves are off this manager, or in this case, 50 managers, they say what they want because you have nothing to say about it. But at least that clarity is freeing. It is freeing. It's like, oh, okay. So now I see why the employees get away with stuff constantly, because that's, all they can do, that's, that's them and their power, really, in this environment, until so they can leave. And there were people making a ton of money that were thrilled to be there, but mostly dudes. Well, all dudes, exclusively dudes at the time, men, college guys that went to college with my older sisters, three, four, five, seven years older than me, were like, I make so much money at that place. Yeah, well, you're a guy, a white guy, and you're holding the platters, and you're getting the massive tips. I never saw a girl get tips in that place. As a matter of fact, they had hostesses in the front who hated the job. I thought it was cushy. I said, oh, you're so lucky to be a hostess in these gowns at the front. They said, are you kidding me? The door's always opening. People are coming in. I'm freezing. I'm in a strapless gown or this really gorgeous prom-type gown that I had to buy myself. And the tip jar is this huge cut glass, like crystal bowl, but it has a hole cut out of the middle of it. So they want the money to come down, and the the company keeps it. You know, that's still legal in many places in the United States. Steal. The flippin' tips that people think they're giving the actual workers. Wow. Anyway, so great chatting with you guys, talking about work. And this is episode 36, and I'll be back with you soon.